John. If you turn with me now in your Bibles as we come to the preaching of God's Word, we're going to be in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to read a, a few different sections here from the book of Judges as we look at the first judge that's given to us in this book. So we'll begin in Judges chapter 1 and keep a finger in Judges chapter 3. And I'm also going to, instead of verse 7, I'm actually going to read verse 6 as well of Judges chapter 3. So just a heads up when we get to that, that part. Here now the reading of the word of the Lord. From there they, Judah and Simeon, went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kanaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa as his daughter, Aksa his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Turn with me now to chapter 3, verse 6. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This sends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it and the preaching of his word now. Let us pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we come and ask that you would be with us, opening our eyes, piercing our hearts between joint and marrow, soul and spirit revealing the intentions of our hearts through your word this morning. Be with me, a mere servant, to proclaim your word in truth. And would you guide your people into what is true, that they may know life, salvation, and righteousness and holiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our texts, texts, plural, for us this morning are interesting. These are usually texts that we would skim over and think, why in the world is this in our Bible? Well, that's a good question. As I read originally chapter 1, when I preached that a few weeks ago, I had the same question. What is this about Caleb, his daughter, 
this command or this request to the whoever would kill this king would get his daughter in marriage and then her request for springs of water. And what in the world would, would this have to do with Othniel later when he shows up again in chapter 3? Well, I spent many days this week wrestling through that very question. Why is this in our Bibles? And I think simply put, we need a righteous deliverer. And we're going to see that in Othniel, the first judge that's given to us in this book of Judges. The book of Judges sets out 12 judges, a number that you many know is associated with the tribes of Israel, to show this is a picture of the whole of Israel. And Othniel is the first one given to us here. He's described as a Kenite or a Kenite, who is a descend, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, as we, will, as we learn from chapter 1. Now, these would, in essence, be Gentiles who are incorporated into the people of Israel. These are not originally descendants of Abraham, but they're included in the people of Israel, and more importantly, they're included in the people of Judah. One of the purposes of the book of, jo- of Judges is to set forth the tribe of Judah as the exemplary tribe, the tribe that shows forth the righteousness that is needed, that shows forth the rule, the judging, the deliverance, and the salvation that is needed. And we'll see this pictured for us in Othniel clearly. But there's something else about this text I think we can relate to in some way. Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever had somebody in your life that bullied you? Most often we think of bullies as something that kids deal with, young children. There's a young boy or girl at school who, for whatever reason, and you may not even know why, has it out for you. They want to take your lunch money. They make fun of you in front of everybody. Maybe they push you around or even attack you. Bullying is a real problem amongst children. But adults, it's not limited to kids. Maybe you have a coworker, a boss, who for whatever reason, and you can't figure it out, has it out for you. And maybe it's somebody in position of authority over you, and you don't know what to do. And you need somebody to come and save you and deliver you. That's not unlike the situation that the Israelites found themselves in. Now, as we'll learn, they brought this upon themselves in many ways, yet they needed somebody to deliver them from a bully, from one who had it out for them to make them serve them to do all their commands. Well, that is what I'd like for us to begin to see this morning, that we need a righteous deliverer, and that Othniel shows this to us. But where we begin in our text this morning, in verse 7, as we have worked our way through, is this phrase, and the people did eat what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a phrase that shows up seven times in the book of Judges. We saw the first one last week, and this is now the second And it's a phrase that gets repeated over and over. It marks distinct sections in this book. And there's a significance to this number seven, that it is a completeness of Israel. This shows that this is the characteristic of what Israel is. Those who do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Those who have forgotten their God and instead turned to foreign gods. And the reason I read verse 6 is we see this showing up in another way in this book, that they took to themselves for wives from the foreign nations around them that they were supposed to exterminate. They were supposed to get rid 
from among the land. We see idolatry growing in Judah or growing in Israel. We see intermarrying with foreign Israelites, men taking women to themselves who worshiped other gods and women taking husbands to themselves who worshiped other gods. A parable of when you forsake God as your husband, you will forsake those as well or you will forsake the need for a godly spouse. It's from this place that we now turn to chapter 1 to see why Othniel is set out at the beginning of this book in the way that he is. You'll see in the title of this sermon that the structure is laid out for you. A husband, a judge, a savior. So first let us look at a husband. The text tells us in verse 12, Caleb says, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Why is this story highlighted, a strange one to many of us? Why is it so important that Othniel marries Oxa? Well, first of all, it's important because she is Caleb's daughter. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament very well, or you needed a little refresh like I do very often, Caleb is a very significant figure in the Old Testament, particularly in this period. He is one of the 12 Israelites who Moses sent to go into the promised land to spy it out, to see what was there. And he was the representative who was sent from the tribe of Judah. Moses sent one representative from every tribe to go in and spy out the land. And everybody comes back, and only one person gives a good report. That's Caleb. Numbers chapter 13, Caleb says to all the people, go up at once and occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb trusts in the Lord. He knows who is on his side. Yes, maybe there's giants in the land. Maybe there is armies and people that could fight against them, but Caleb knows who is on his side. He trusts in the Lord and he sees, we can defeat all of these people. He is the representative righteous one from the tribe of Judah. And so to marry, to win the daughter of Caleb was to secure for yourself a righteous heritage. It was to place yourself in this line. And he was the exemplary one to be in the line of. So that he wants to marry into Caleb's line. The second thing is that we see the nature of Aksa herself. When she came to him, or, and, and, and Caleb gave Oxa his daughter for a wife to Othniel, and when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negebs, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. There's an important thing about this woman that's not mentioned that you will see over and over again in this book is that there is no mention of idolatry with her. But in fact, there is a desire to gain springs of water. And to us, we just had several months of drought. We can actually see the importance of water. My wife and I have remarked how green and astonishingly green it is with just a, a, a few weeks of rain. I left for California three weeks ago and everything was brown and here we are three weeks later and it's all green. But in that culture, to have a spring of water 
Water running year-round was a sign of wealth, was a sign of that you could live on the land regardless if rains are falling regularly or not. And she's showing that she wants to dwell in the land, that she wants to secure her place in the promised land. She's not seeking to live among those that are around her. She says, no, I want this land, this inheritance, and I want to have a spring of water. I want to secure my place in it. She's showing herself as part of the faithful generation. She's seeking to live in the the land by securing for herself springs of water. Ultimately, she also manifests herself like her father is one who trusts in the Lord, who wants to dwell in the promised land, God's land. This is where I belong, and I want to make my life fruitful here. So not only would Othniel carry on a righteous heritage, but he would have a righteous bride. So we see the character of this man revealed in a few short passages. Othniel, the exemplary man that's given to us in this section. And that makes our transition to chapter 3 all the more stark. Othniel marrying into a righteous family and marrying a righteous bride is a contrast for Israel to see in chapter 3. When it says that the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Israel was caught up marrying those who served idols, and they ended up serving their idols, as chapter or verse 7 tells us. But Othniel prizes what is righteous. He prizes what is good, and he sought to be counted among those who are righteous, sought to perpetuate this in Israel. But there's something else that Othniel is a picture of, a paradigm of, as we work through this book, that he is a picture and a paradigm of what it means to treat women. This is something that will come up over and over again in the book of Judges. How do men treat women? We'll see the important roles that women play, both in taking active and passive roles throughout this book. But we see in Othniel, a man, in particular a judge, in the way that he treats a woman as a way to evaluate what is good. He treats this woman with honor, with dignity. He fights to win her for her affection. He treats her as precious, Something worth fighting for. A lesson for all of us, for how we ought to think about treating women in our lives, in particular our brides. So we see Othniel is set out first and foremost as the ideal husband, the one who wants a righteous bride. Secondly, the next thing we see is a judge. This text is set out for us in what's called a chiasm or a parallel section in verses 7 through 11. And you can see this for us pretty clearly in verses 8 and 10, in the repetition of the double repetition of the name Kushan Rishathaim, which has an interesting meaning I will point to in just a moment. But in verse 8, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. 
You have God selling them into the hand. You have his name repeated twice, and then you have a period of years. And then in verse 10, you have a similar thing. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, that is, Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to the war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. This is what's called a parallel and often a thing called a chiasm where things descend one way and they are mirrored and repeated and often resolved in another section, sometimes left unresolved in another section, a mirror of sorts of how a text is laid out. And in response to Israel's rejection of the Lord, God brings them in verse 8, brings upon them the curses of the of the covenant. And there's three things that we see in this picture of Othniel as a judge, that God has a serious and severe response to sin. God brings upon them these curses that we saw in verse 8. If they will serve the gods of the nations, then they will be servants of those kings as well, the kings of those nations. And God sends this king, Kushan Rishathaim, it's a name of a play on words, probably even on a, a, a play on words of the where he was from, king of Mesopotamia. And this name means doubly evil, doubly evil, Rishathaim, that he was the most evil, you could say, the most evil king that could be around Israel. But this one is from Mesopotamia. This is not a local king inside of Israel. This is actually one of the furthest kings from Israel, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. The most evil king, a land that would be used by God in the future to punish Israel. Later generations would see this and say, Babylon, Assyria, nations sent by God to judge the people of God. It's a picture for us of the seriousness with which God deals with sin is throughout the life of Israel, God uses wicked nations that surround her to punish her for forsaking him. But then God does something in verse 10. He sends his spirit, his Holy Spirit, and supernaturally empowers Othniel to single-handedly go and defeat this king. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into his hands. It is through the work of God that Othniel was able to overcome this powerful king. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting what this text says that Othniel judges not Mesopotamia, but judges Israel. And I would like in a few moments for us to see what this judging means. But for now, I want you to note that, that he judges Israel by overcoming this evil, most evil, doubly evil king. There's another thing that we see in this passage as well, and that is that God's sovereign over the nations. And he, God, verse 8, sold them the people of Israel, into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. And then again in verse 10, And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim of Mesopotamia into 
Othniel's hand. It is the Lord who sends, it is the Lord who gives, and the Lord who takes away. It's reminiscent of what King Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has his purposes, and he is sovereign even over the kings of this world. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God used Kushan to afflict his people, and then God turns around and defeats and punishes Kushan himself. The hand of Kushan, whom the people of Israel served, was defeated by God. And now Kushan is given into the hand of Othniel. God is sovereign. He is the one doing this, working through kings, working through judges to accomplish his plans and purposes. And it's not ultimately Othniel's doing. It is God who gives this king into Othniel's hand. He ultimately has no power of himself to accomplish this. And it is a lesson for us today as we have even wicked rulers that might rule over us, making laws and rules, making our lives difficult to worship God and to proclaim our faith freely. The seemingly double evil rulers of this world, they are all under the sovereign hand of God. Their hearts are in his hand and he will turn them wherever he will. We don't always understand. We don't always see the purposes behind it. But God has his purposes. In a way, it's like the waters that surrounded the people of Israel as they passed through the Red Sea. God upholding these waters that at any moment feels they could crush them. And those waters only came so far and the Lord said, no more. And we see this play out again here with Othniel. Yes, Kushan Rishathaim, you can go. Cause my people to serve you, but only for so long, only so far. And God's hand is powerful to save. We may not see all these things, but we must remember that God is sovereign over even the rulers of this world. And our last point this morning, a savior. The centerpiece of Verses 7 through 11 is verse 9. But there's something else that's interesting here in this whole section from chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 11. Is this whole section can be a chiasm. A whole section is a mirror from one half to the other. It begins with Othniel and it ends with Othniel. This section, chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 11. This is a common literary device that they use to tell stories in, in Israel. You have to have, make things memorable for people. They're not a visual culture like we are. They don't have movies or screenplays. They would tell stories 
Commentator George Schwab helps to show how this works. And he shows how Othniel begins as this righteous man, and he is the, the, the one at the end who is the righteous man. But at the center of this whole section that begins and ends with Othniel is chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of those who plundered them. And there is a double repetition here. Chapter 2, verse 16, and then again in chapter 3, verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. The Lord raised up judges who saved them who raised up a deliverer. Just read this word as Savior. It's the same word. The Lord raised up a Savior who saved them. At the very center is a God who saves and uses his Savior to save his people. Why does God do this? He hears their cry. They cried out to the Lord. What is interesting, and you will see this all throughout the book of Judges, is there's not a sign of repentance, not a sign of I'm going to forsake the gods of this world. I'm going to forsake my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done, for what I've done. No, these people simply are suffering. And as chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 tell us, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppress them. God is compassionate to his people, even when our hearts are hard. Israel did not deserve this. They did not earn this. They did not show by their penitence that they were worthy or deserved for God to come and save them. They deserved to suffer under this doubly evil king. Yet God abounds as we heard this morning in our call to worship, in steadfast love towards his people. He is compassionate towards them. Psalm 130, as we sang in our psalm this morning, O Israel, hope in God, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God hears the cries of his people, and he is their deliverer. He is their savior, who despite themselves should not be saved, yet he comes and rescues and delivers them. But there's more. The way this passage ends, verse 11, so the land had rest for 40 years, and something sad happens. Othniel, the righteous judge, dies. He dies. He's no more. And then, as we will see in coming weeks, the cycle continues. Israel again will do evil in the sight of the Lord. What we need is a judge who can't die. We need a judge who cannot die. And that is what you see over and over. The judge dies, the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm here to tell you today, we have a judge who died and came back to life 
and will never die again. And he rules his people now and is guiding them and directing them despite their waywardness and lostness. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true Othniel. He is the true husband of his people. The name of Othniel is God is my strength. And he is the one who has been revealed as in Jesus Christ is the one full of the strength of God. The true and greater Othniel. He is the true husband. He fought for his bride. And it cost him his life. He actually died for her. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus Christ is the true judge. He is the one who conquered the most evil king, the most evil ruler who harasses, attacks, and makes God's people to to serve him, Satan himself. Ephesians 2 tells us that Satan is the ruler of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's the one who harasses and attacks the people of God. Yet Jesus Christ has rendered his judgment. And he has stripped Satan of his most potent weapon with which he can afflict us, the fear of death. Because he died and rose again. And Satan cannot use this, that death would seal us forever in our sins. We can say to Satan, no, I will live again. Yes, your sins that you lobby against, the sins that I've committed that you lobby and hold before my conscience, yes, those are true. But Jesus Christ died for those, and I will live again because he lives again today. We will stand victorious over Satan because of Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we will too. And Jesus Christ did this single-handedly. The Spirit-empowered one defeating our most evil enemy. And lastly, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Christ is the one who was sent from God to rescue his wayward people, to deliver them who over and over and over forget him, who turn to the things of this world to find our life, our joy and happiness apart from God. And it is God's sovereign power alone that saves us. We cannot deliver ourselves. It is Jesus Christ who has delivered us. So rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in what God has done for us in sending us the true Othniel, the true God is my strength, that we can say, Jesus Christ is my God who is my strength. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice that we have a Savior who has loved us, uh, his bride who has given himself up for us, who has rendered his verdict, who has given life to us even now, and who saves us, is compassionate towards us, and hears our cries. Hear our cry, Lord, for mercy, for strength in this life as we walk by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.